This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. July 27th, 1985, I experienced something amazing. I was in a hospital room in a rocking chair, and I was holding in my arms my firstborn child, Bonnie Joy Eileen. And that was glorious. About 13 years ago, I was in Times Square in New York City. Glorious city, used to be before COVID hit. And I was there to see my favorite all-time play, movie, anything, Les Mis, live on Broadway. Prisoner 24601, Jean Valjean, this broken man who experiences God's grace and redemption and lives this sacrificial life. So beautiful. It was glorious. Tuesday night, I was with a friend named John, and we went out to dinner, and we had this amazing conversation about life, about our hurts, about our longings, about our dreams, and seriously, I came away from that, and I like, I could hardly wait for heaven. It was glorious. Once I was standing in the Pacific, by the Pacific Ocean in a small village in Mexico, I was standing next to this older Mexican woman, uh, a poor peasant woman, I don't speak Spanish, she doesn't, didn't speak English. We were just standing there, we were the only two people on the beach, and we saw out in the distance a whale passing by. And we looked at each other, it's like, can you believe that? That was glorious. In about two weeks, three weeks, I'll look out my kitchen window and I will see like a blizzard of white flowers on the trees in my backyard, and that will be glorious. I'm sure that you have, and you will have more and more experiences that you consider glorious. Things you see, things you experience, people meet, places you go, encounters with the Lord, it will be glorious. Something happens when you experience glory. You are drawn in. You, like, you can't help yourself, you're, you're captivated. It's like a magnet drawing a little sliver of metal. It just draws you in. You can't take your eyes off of it. You're captivated. You're entranced. You gaze. You adore. And you not only gaze and adore, but as you go up the ladder of gloriness, you also change. Things can change you. I'm thinking especially about people. When you see a life, uh, uh, the arc of a life that is glorious, Think of someone like a Mother Teresa or Harriet Tubman or uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It's a glorious life. I think of my, my son's mentor in Papua New Guinea, Dr. Bill McCoy, who was medical missionary for decades in some of the poorest places of the earth. Just, and, and you look and you say, I don't want to just gaze in the door. I, I want to be changed in my life. I want to be transformed that's what glory does to you. There's a, there's a lot of places in the Bible that talk about glory. The Bible is a book that is filled with glory. Someone has defined it this way. The glory of God is the dazzling, jaw-dropping, awe-inspiring showcase of God's character to a world darkened by sin. I love that definition. Psalm 113 
is one of these places that talks about the glory of God. It says, the Lord is high above all nations and his glory is above the heavens. In Isaiah chapter six, the prophet Isaiah has this vision of God sitting on his temple. And he said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. So you see a theme in the Bible that the glory of God is, is high. We can experience it, but the source of it, the real potency of it is it's way above us. It's way beyond us. It, it, it's transcendent. And we can't climb up to it. His glory is high. In our gospel reading there's, that you heard from the Gospel of John, chapter 12, and I encourage you to turn to that if you don't have your Bibles open. Uh, there's a lot of talk about glory. So in verse 23, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man, that's Jesus talking about himself, to be glorified. And then in verse 28, Jesus calls out to his heaven, heavenly Father, says, Father, glorify your name. And then the Father says back in verse 28, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So here's the astonishing thing about this passage, though. The astonishing thing is that Jesus is going to say, and it's, it's, it's subtle, it's, you have to read it carefully, pay attention, listen, but what he's going to say is, if you want to see my glory, if you want to see the clearest, cleanest, most powerful demonstration of my glory, I'll tell you where to look for it. It's when I died on the cross. That is the height of my glory. That's when the Son of Man will be glorified. So verse 32, kind of in the middle of this passage, towards the end of this passage, he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Which is literally what happened. Literally, when someone was sentenced to death, and nailed to a Roman cross and executed by crucifixion. They were on the ground, and then the person, or I'll say the non-person, because that's what they were treated like, was lifted up. Now, there's also a hint here, there's probably a double meaning for Jesus, lifted up on the cross, and I'll also be raised up in the resurrection, but today we'll just look at the first part of that, lifted up on the cross. Jesus says, that is my moment of glory. That is the moment, that's what's going to draw the world to me. It's like a magnet. I don't know if they still do this in junior high, but I remember in junior high, science dissecting frogs, which was awesome. Not glorious, but it was cool. And then I remember the magnet experiment. You put those little metal shavings on the on the table and then you put a magnet on it and they're drawn to it and now they're like they're all together around the magnet Jesus says my cross is going to be like a magnet well this passage actually starts a little earlier so let me back up and get the context to what Jesus is saying here so in verse 20 it says now among those who went up to worship at the Passover feast great Jewish feast holiday were some Greeks. So who were these guys? Well, we don't know. It's the only time they're mentioned in the New Testament. Uh, we probably know that they, well, we know they were Greeks, and we know that they were curious about Jesus. They were probably attracted to Judaism, attracted to its, its lifestyle, its, its ethics, its 
merciful, tender-hearted, yet creator God. And now they see Jesus, and they're really attracted to him. They want to know what he's about. So Jesus replies to them in verse 23, and he starts talking about glory. So the Greeks were very interested in glory. And I had a hunch about this, so I reached out to one of my really smart scholar friends, Dr. Richard Gibson, who attends Res and teaches at Wheaton College. And I said, uh, what, what would the Greeks be thinking about glory when they come to Jesus? What would sort of be in their background, in their worldview? And he said, oh, the Greeks were obsessed with glory. They were obsessed with fame. But it was the glory of the, the beautiful, the, the brilliant, the powerful, the victorious, the successful. They were obsessed with that kind of glory. And Richard, he sent me a, a, a quote from an ode, a poem to an Olympic athlete who had won some wrestling event. And the athlete, it said that um, his hair was crowned with garlands of flourishing blossoms as he walks the lofty streets with gentle-voiced victory procession. Now that is glory. That guy's got glory. So notice what Jesus says in verse 23. He replies to these glory-obsessed Greeks, and he says, oh, I'll show you glory. I know something about glory. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, when Jesus uses the hour in the Gospel of John, which he does on a couple occasions, like in the, the story of the wedding feast at Cana where Jesus turns the water into wine and his mother wants him to turn the water into wine, he says, my hour has not yet come. And then he says it again, my hour has not yet come. The hour is the whole thing, his, his passion, the passion narrative which takes up about a third of the Gospels. It's his arrest and his trial and, and the beatings and the long walk down the Via Della Rosa and, and then his crucifixion and his death. It's the whole thing. That's his hour. And he says, now my hour's come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And remember, being glorified is being lifted up on the cross. So... This is not just strange of Jesus to say this to the Greeks or to us as contemporary Americans. We're not that much different than the Greeks. These, those ancient Greeks were very much like that in our culture. That would not just be weird, that would be scandalous because crucifixion was reserved. The Romans reserved it for non-Roman citizens. And not just non-Roman citizens, but the lowest of the low. Slaves. It was called the slave's death. That's what it was called. People did not mention the word crucifixion in public. Polite people didn't do that. Nice people didn't do that. Smart, sophisticated people just didn't do that. It was rude. It's like a swear word. Fleming Rutledge, in her book, The Crucifixion, she says... Think of all the slaves in the American colonies who were killed at the whim of an overseer, not to mention those who died on the infamous Middle Passage across the Atlantic. 
No one remembers their names or their individual histories. Their stories were thrown away with their bodies. And then she says, this was the destiny chosen by the creator and Lord of the universe, the death of a nobody. Unbelievable. How is that glorious? It is a failure. It's a defeat. It's the triumph of injustice. It is the day of demonic delirium. In John chapter 1, verse 5, right at the beginning of the, the Gospel of John, we hear about how Jesus was not only with God, he was God from the very beginning. God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, with the Father. One with the Father, he created all things. In him was life, and life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, John says, and the darkness has not overcome it. But at the cross, it does seem like darkness has overcome the light. I mean, it seems like all is lost. All hope is gone. Why would Jesus say, this is glorious? Well, we get a hint in verse 24. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, I love this about Jesus because he has this, these, these kind of lofty, abstract concepts, but he always gives these beautiful, earthy, concrete images. So he says, okay, I just want you to look at, a, look at wheat growing in the field. Have you ever seen a wheat field? Have you ever stopped to notice it? I mean, I stood in a wheat field, a massive wheat field last summer in northern Minnesota. And it was July, and they were at full height, and the sun was shining, and they, they glisten in the sun as they wave gently in the wind, and they're so tall and, and beautiful, and they're glorious. But Jesus said, but there's only one way for that grain of wheat to give more life. And it has to fall into the ground, and it has to die. It can't remain just, just sitting straight and tall and beautiful. It has to fall into the ground. When it looks like for the seed, it's all over. It's dead. It's gone. There's a dead end. And yet, it comes up again. And Jesus says, take that, that little picture, blow it up, global, cosmic, transcendent. And that's what happened at the cross with the Son of God going into the ground, becoming the wheat. See, our God is high and glorious. He is lifted up on a throne. He is majestic. But he can also go to the lowest places, places of war, places of poverty, a brothel outside of Phnom Penh, a labor and delivery room in Papua New Guinea where there's no medical care. Our God can go to the lowest places, and that's glorious. You say, well, God, God can love good people. God can love righteous people. God can love lovely people, beautiful people. Yeah, that's glorious. But God... Loving sinners? 
God loving the ungodly? That is glorious. God blessing the rich, the strong, the successful, the omnicompetent, the superstars, the efficient. Yeah, that's glorious. But God loving the poor? I once rode on a bus in a small town in Mexico, poor bus driver. The guy had severely deformed ears. And I remember sitting in the back with other American passengers who were mocking him behind his back. And I thought, God, to love this bus driver, unknown, to love the poor, to love the weak, to love those with developmental disabilities, to love the trafficked and the brutalized. That is glorious. God can love you on your best days when you feel like, oh man, the sun is shining, life is good, I'm good, I'm a good Christian. But a God who can love you on your worst days, your darkest days, your dead ends, when you're so depressed you can't get out of bed, when your sins are piled high and Satan rightfully and accurately accuses you, And yet, as St. Paul says, God in Christ has canceled the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And through the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him at the cross. That is glorious, I tell you. So that's why Jesus could say, I, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. We have this Anglican prayer that is wonderful. It talks about how we are wonderfully created, and yet we are more wonderfully restored. I love that collect. You know, there's a true story of a city in Paraguay, Katara is the name of the city. Maybe you've seen this on YouTube, this amazing story of Uh, This small town, which is actually um, basically built on a garbage dump, a landfill, a massive landfill. And the people are, many of the people in the town make their living as trash pickers. They go through the trash, they go through the landfill with long um, sticks called ganchos, and they pull out uh, the trash. So hence they're called gancheros, the people of the town. And there were a couple of creative young musicians, they said, why don't we teach these people how to play music. But the the instruments were too expensive. So somebody came up with a brilliant idea. Well, let's let's make musical instruments out of the trash. There's all kinds of stuff in the landfill. So they took, um, you know, bottle caps to Coke bottles and beer bottles, and they turned them into the keys for saxophone. They took a beaten aluminum um, salad bowl, and and they turned it into the basis, the, the, the... basic thing about a violin, whatever that piece is called. They <laughs> What's it called, Ruth? Oh, whatever, thank you. So, <laughs> got to do my homework before. So they took a, a, a cooking tools and they made a cello out of it, Ruth. They called it the Recycled Orchestra and they played classical music and they played local folk songs. One of the guys, one of these musicians said, we should 
We shouldn't be so quick to throw trash away. But we shouldn't throw people away either. I love that. That's so gospel. An American orchestra with well-paid musicians playing in a beautiful musical, that's glory. That's really glorious. But a recycled, order, uh, recycled orchestra, reclaimed, redeemed from junk? I don't know. I find that just as glorious, if not more glorious. So the God revealed at the cross, Jesus dying at the cross, the Son of Man, this one who is from the beginning, dying on the cross. There is high glory and there is low glory in God. And the low glory actually becomes high glory, transformed through the cross. So our Lord is, like Isaiah saw, high and lifted up, but he also descends into hell, as our creeds teach us. He judges sin because he's holy, and that's glorious. But he also justifies sinners by taking upon himself the sin of the world. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he is the lamb who was slain for the sins of the world. So the church says, gaze, behold, look. We say it all the time in our worship service. Watch for it. You'll hear it in just a few minutes. But as we gaze, we're also transformed. Remember I said as up the ladder of gloriness, we, it draws us in and it changes us. We don't stay the same. When you gaze and adore, when you see the glory of the cross, when you see the glory of Jesus' cruciform life, it changes you. It melts your heart. He became the grain of wheat for us. And Jesus says in verse 25, it will change you. It will change your whole approach to life. That's why he says, and, and radically, verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Now you might think, oh, I don't want to hate my life. I like life. Jesus seemed to really like life. He liked birds, and he liked flowers, and he liked small children. What's he saying? Well, this is one of those times where it's like, this is a very cultural thing for us. This is not Midwestern talk. This is very Hebraic. This is very, could be even Greek or Italian, very dramatic. But it's saying, it's, it's saying something like this. As you see, as you're drawn into Jesus, as you see the beauty of his life and his death, it, you can't love. You can't love your old life, my old life, self-centered, sacrifice-avoiding, perched comfortably above the suffering and pain of the world. I will start to hate that self-absorbed, it's-all-about-me life. And I'll start to long for a better life. I'll start to long for a Christ-like life. I'll start to say, Lord, I want to become more like you. You know, when I first started coming to Res about 12 years ago, I, it was all really new to me. And there's just a lot of words and a lot of stuff going on, a lot of gestures, and maybe some of you have experienced that, and I, I just, 
Didn't know if I understood it. I didn't know uh, what to think about it. Didn't know if I liked it. But I tell you, there was one point in every worship service that really got to me, at least every time. And I told my friends, you know, that's, I don't know what's going on, but that's worth the price of admission, which is free. But the time, that's worth showing up for. It's worth showing up for that. It's when the priest breaks the host, the body of Christ, and holds it up. We call it the fraction because Jesus was fractured for us. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And you say, let us keep the feast. I'd show up just to see that because I, at that point in my life, I was like, Jean Valjean, prisoner 24601. I just felt like I just, my life is broken. I don't know if we can get back on track. And yet that drew me in and I thought, if God can take that, the broken body of Jesus, and turn it into the hope of the world, then there's hope for me. And I would say, Lord, make me more like you. And notice Jesus says, this life, this isn't like a do-it-yourself life. This isn't just a try-harder life. Look at verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Isn't that beautiful? This is life in union with Jesus. Not just saying, I want to be like that, I want to imitate that, but... He's in me and with me and beside me and for me. And the Father is honoring me. I'm not alone in this. That is so beautiful. You know, we talk a lot about We talk about churches, Mother Church, Holy Mother Church, which is a very ancient, um, early church kind of way of talking about the church, that the church is your mother. And it's very beautiful. And you know, sometimes your mother will say, you need to shape up. You need to stop that. You can't use that language around here. You can't beat your brother like that. You need to behave this way. So that's what mothers do. We need mothers like that. But you know, first and foremost, Holy Mother Church says this, be drawn, be captivated, look, behold, gaze, adore, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Taste and see that the Lord is good. See what manner of love the Father has for us that we should be called the children of God. Come to the waters and drink freely. That's where the gospel always starts. So this day, this Eucharist, this service, this week, this Holy Week, watch for that. Listen for that. Let your heart be touched by that. Adore. Behold. Taste and see, come and drink. 
In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.